Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.3. Last time we examined how Nikita Khrushchev managed to take over from Stalin, thereby taking the reins of the Soviet Union into his hands. In short, he accomplished this by outmaneuvering his rivals, and by publicly and privately undermining them through the party apparatus. Having built up a cadre of allies in the process, Khrushchev's power base appeared secure. Since summer 1955, it had been decided that the 20th Party Congress would take place in February 1956. Khrushchev knew throughout 1955 that the Soviet Union would have to move forward if it was to compete with the West on a realistic basis. To do so, Khrushchev posed something radical, a speech absolving much of the party for what had gone wrong in the past, but placing a great deal of blame on the personal leadership of Joseph Stalin. Yet, as we'll see in this episode, neither the circumstances which surrounded this supposedly secret speech, nor Khrushchev's motivations for performing it, were entirely straightforward. I'll now take you to February 1956, where one of the landmark events in this series of ours was taking shape. On the surface, it seemed to be business as usual. The great Kremlin palace was crammed with party functionaries from across Europe and the world. Red Army generals, resplendent in their military uniforms and medals, completed the picture of power, influence and confidence. 1,400 individuals from all walks of life were present, and they collectively expected to hear the usual messages and clap at the usual prompts. Yet even on the first official day of this congress, on the 14th of February, something was amiss. While a statue of Lenin towered over the crowd as usual. No portrait of Stalin could be seen anywhere. This touch, while subtle, was noted by many who had grown accustomed to the late leader's mustachioed face adorning every significant wall in sight. Suddenly now, his face was absent. It wasn't until nearly a fortnight later, though, that this signal rang true. In a closed session of the Congress, open only to the most important functionaries of the party, where the opening meeting had been accessible to some foreign journalists, the reception opened late in the evening of the 24th of February and continued on into the night. In a speech entitled On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences, Nikita Khrushchev talked for over four hours with just a single intermission, 
The speech, which didn't end until the early hours of the morning of the 25th of February, amounted to a devastating attack on Stalin and his actions. Everything from Stalin's severe paranoia to his shortcomings as a tactician in the time of war was criticised, and Khrushchev saved several special attacks for the actual cult surrounding Stalin, that son of the universe or father of peoples, as some party propagandists have called him in the past. The speech represented a blistering attack on Stalin's name and deeds, in a tone of unprecedented force and frankness. It castigated the dead ruler for his intolerance, his brutality, and his abuse of power, and also for his mania for greatness, his suspicion and haughtiness. It gave numerous devastating examples of Stalin's duplicity and atrocity, of his craftiness, yet of his lack of judgment also. Above all, his betrayal of the spirit of Marxist-Leninism, in many ways, but especially through the cult of the individual, which was allegedly so alien to this spirit. Khrushchev even took time to mock Stalin, who had attempted to paint himself as a military genius by denouncing Stalin as a coward. Not once during the whole war did he dare to go to the front. Khrushchev also bulldozed through Stalin's presentation of himself as Lenin's successor in spirit and doctrine, revealing the notes which had been buried by Stalin for so many years, wherein Lenin had called the Man of Steel excessively rude and recommended that Stalin be replaced by someone with a greater tolerance, greater loyalty, greater kindness, a more considerate attitude towards the comrades, and a less capricious temper. For the duration of the speech, the delegates assembled listened in a stunned silence, broken by the occasional murmur or gasp of disbelief at what they were hearing. Some people became unwell during the speech's marathon duration, and they had to be helped out of the auditorium. One leader of the communist youth newspaper felt compelled to down a load of pills out of fear that his weak heart would give out under the strain of hearing such an assault on the late party secretary. When the speech was over, an individual present noted that a deep stillness descended on the hall. One could not hear the chair's squeak, coughs, or a whisper. Nobody looked at his neighbour, either because of the suddenness of what had happened or due to confusion and fear. The shock was extraordinarily deep. As he left the room, the editor of the party's official newspaper, Communist, exclaimed, apparently capturing the mood, What will happen next? What will we do? The question was similar to one which Khrushchev and his peers had been grappling with since the previous year. The speech, which had so shocked his audience, had not come from nowhere, but had been a tactical, considered, and in fact, well-researched piece of party propaganda. And that it was propaganda can be discerned not merely by what Khrushchev said, but what he pointedly avoided saying. As one historian noted, Khrushchev said nothing about those acts of mass cruelty, which might be regarded as enhancing the power and interests of the Soviet state, the liquidation of the Kulaks as a class, the man-made famine of 1932-33, the deportations from Poland and the Baltic states, the massacre of some 15,000 Polish officer war prisoners in the Katyn Forest and elsewhere in 1940. What he emphasised instead was Stalin's habit of torturing and killing devoted communists, his miscalculations in the planning and conduct of the war. 
Khrushchev's selective use of Stalin's crimes in his speech reflected not merely Khrushchev's fears and dispositions, but also his aims. Khrushchev did not want to discredit the Soviet system, but he knew that he had to disavow what Stalin had done if the Soviet Union was to move on from its uncomfortable record. The speech was part of this process, that of breaking ever so gradually with Stalin's legacy so as to distance the new regime led by Khrushchev from Stalin's legacy while maintaining the legitimacy of the USSR itself. This policy was called de-Stalinization, and it had begun in the aftermath of the late First Secretary's death in spring 1953 with a number of reforms. Yet, while de-Stalinization had proceeded apace, it had never, up to this point, been accompanied by such a searing, public denunciation of what Stalin had done or not done during his 30-year tenure of rule. Just as much as it was the logical conclusion to the process of de-Stalinization, then, the speech in the early hours of the 25th of February was also a reaction to several considerable developments. While Khrushchev's attack on Stalin appears bombastic and incendiary on the surface then, it was in actual fact very carefully calculated and delicately delivered. The need was to condemn Stalin's crimes without condemning the way in which the Soviet Union had benefited from them. If we do not speak the truth at the Congress, Khrushchev had told his Presidium colleagues the previous year, that we will be forced to tell the truth after some time, but then we will not be reporting, we will be people under investigation, we will be accused as accomplices. Khrushchev's fear of being associated with Stalin's crimes had grown along with those of his peers as Stalin's gulag system was deconstructed and its victims began to filter back into civilian life to the best of their ability. Khrushchev was genuinely moved and horrified by some of the revelations learned from these peoples, as we'll see in a bit, but he also felt the alarm bells of self-interest ring out as well. If these victims of Stalin's tyranny returned home, if indeed they had a home to return to, then in their hundreds of thousands, they would start to talk about what had been done to them and what they'd seen. Khrushchev's claim that we will be forced to tell the truth after some time is likely explained by this rationale. If the truth from these gulag victims was not intercepted, then soon enough it could cause the entire party edifice to tumble down. If Khrushchev's concern for the truth getting out seems odd, considering what we know about the Soviet ability to suppress such a commodity as truth, then this only confirms the genuine shock which accompanied only a few of the personal anecdotes which Khrushchev had heard. Some of these victims of the Gulag were actually cited by Khrushchev in the course of his four-hour speech. The letters, many of which had been actually sent to Stalin, who had promptly ignored them, enabled Khrushchev to appear to the humanity of those present, and to add further evidence to the bank, which was, more and more, creating an impression of Stalin not as a benevolent leader, but as a monster. A few of these letters are worth recounting here. One victim, who was dying in the gulag by the time her letter reached Stalin, read thus, If I were guilty of even a hundredth of the crimes they are pinning on me, I wouldn't dare address this dying letter to you, but I haven't committed a single one of the crimes I am charged with, and there has never been a shadow of baseness in my soul. I have never in my life told you even a half word of untruth, and now, with one foot in the grave, I am also not lying to you. Another wrote that, To die in a Soviet prison, labelled a despicable traitor of his country, what can be more terrible for an honourable person? I believe that the truth, 
and justice will triumph. I believe. I believe. Amidst these pleas of innocence came other pleas to be allowed back into the Communist Party, since all those charged with any kind of trumped-up crime during Stalin's purges had been expelled and condemned to have their party cards removed, effectively neutering them from taking part in any measure of Soviet society. Asking for her case to be reviewed, in light of the truth, as she put it, one individual who existed in limbo after being released from the Gulag without her party membership being restored, implored Khrushchev to help them in a letter which declared that I understand that anything written by me cannot serve as evidence, but I know that you are able to verify my whole life, and it is this that I am begging you to do. For the relationship with these individuals to be repaired, and for closure to be brought to this process, the 700,000 former inmates had to be rehabilitated, and they would be by the end of the 1950s. While this process began after Stalin's death, Khrushchev's speech accelerated and simplified the process because there was no longer any awkward questions about how the regime had allowed this to happen. It wasn't the regime or communism's fault, you see. It was Stalin's. As the historian Miriam Dobson noted, Men once vilified as enemies of the people were now lauded as the revolution's true heroes, and the party was likewise heroic in its admission of previous error. As such, these former enemies merited readmission into the party, albeit in many cases posthumously. In the five years following Khrushchev's secret speech, 30,954 repressed communists were rehabilitated into the party, though a significant number of these were posthumous. Indeed, it does seem plausible that Khrushchev was as moved by the implications of the truth as he was by the genuine shock and concern he felt for the people that now begged for release. One individual, for example, certainly talked to Khrushchev between the 15th and 23rd of February 1956 as the speech was being prepared. If they don't dethrone Stalin at this congress, the first after the tyrant's death, if they don't tell of his crimes, then they will go down in history as his willing collaborators, said Alexei Snegov, veteran party member and 17-year resident of the Gulag. Only by revealing Stalin's role can they convince the party that they were unwilling participants, he continued, speaking to the son of Anastas Mikoyan, who, as we know, was a distinguished Soviet official. Alexei Snegov had come to the attention first of Mikoyan and then of Khrushchev when he had smuggled a letter out of the Gulag, which he had been languishing in for 17 years by June 1953, in response to the news that Leverenti Beria had been arrested. Beria, in spite of his zeal for reform, had in fact been one of the most ruthless, merciless conduits of Stalin's wrath in the years before, and as head of the feared secret police, he was responsible for placing hundreds of thousands of men, like Alexei Snegov, behind that grim wire fence. Appealing to both Mikoyan and Khrushchev in his letter, Snegov implored the Soviet figures to tell the world about the terrible conditions of the Gulag, and he offered himself as a witness to Beria's trial. Surprisingly, Snegov's offer was actually taken up, and the gaunt Gulag inmate was transported from his remote prison to Moscow, where he met his enemy face to face for the first time in nearly 20 years. What? Are you still alive? Beria asked when he saw Snegov. Your organization didn't do its job properly. Snegov replied. 
Snuggles' revelations at Barry's trial may well have been the shocking watershed moment which convinced Khrushchev that the regime could no longer afford to stay silent on the Gulag issue or Stalin's role in creating and perpetrating its associated miseries. Snegov's vivid recollections of life in the Gulag and his painful recollections of being forced to confess under torture were as upsetting and damning as his continued confidence in Bolshevism and socialism were useful and inspiring. Yet Khrushchev could be sure that Alexei Snegov was far from the only party functionary removed during the purges of the late 1930s, or the more recent Stalinism terror of the 1940s. In addition, while Snegov remained a convinced and avowed Marxist, it was only inevitable that many who returned in their thousands from their imprisonment would hold a serious grudge, and that they may well act out in the name of this grudge. Yet, if it could be known to these individuals, and to the world, that communism was not a gulag, then surely these returning prisoners would see that Stalin's was a criminal exercise not representative of communism, and that certainly their current leadership did not countenance his actions. These returning prisoners could then be readmitted into the party, where they could serve the reformist cause and represent a clean break with Stalin's terrible practices. Purely by employing these once discarded comrades, Khrushchev could demonstrate his own benevolence, and this act would serve as an apology, even if Khrushchev himself would not be seen to actually say sorry to each one of the victims. Merely by releasing the Gulag prisoners, the party was admitting that Stalin had been wrong to accuse them of crimes in the first place, and thus from spring 1953 it could be argued, Khrushchev and his peers set themselves up to complete the de-Stalinization process in the manner that did take place. How could a man like Beria, for example, pose as a reformer of any kind when he had been so responsible in sending men like Alexei Snegov to the Gulag? Of course he couldn't, and this may provide us with another reason why Beria was executed in December 1953. His hands were simply too dirty to be properly clean. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. For everyone else, there was an understandable anxiety about what publicly denouncing Stalin would mean for them. Khrushchev had made his career under Stalin. He had worked, grown and learned a great deal under the Man of Steel, and at several times he expressed great admiration for the man in a manner which would surely be on some kind of record. Khrushchev knew as well that, to the average Soviet citizen, separating the party or his actions and those of his colleagues from those of Stalin seemed like an impossible exercise. Had they not operated as one body for the last 30 years, The only way men like Khrushchev survived, let alone advanced in Stalin's world, was to demonstrate supreme devotion to the late First Secretary's line. Surely then, Khrushchev's hands were as dirty as Beria's. It was therefore important in the months before the speech that Khrushchev distinguished between his actions and those of Beria. This, in fact, Khrushchev neglected to do, and he did not actually claim during the speech that his crimes were excusable, while Stalin's were not. He simply refrained from mentioning his own crimes at all, and he focused instead on the actual title of his speech and what it implied, namely how the cult of Stalin had led men like him and so many others astray. Even in the case of people who had committed crimes, a moment comes when they can confess, and that brings them, if not acquittal, then at least a reduction in sentence, claimed Khrushchev, in a line that could hardly have been of much comfort to those that knew full well what they had done under Stalin's reign. In meetings of the party presidium in November 1955, Khrushchev had reminded those present of their crimes. While it was by then known that Georgi Malenkov, at one point a rival of the first secretary, had been effectively blackmailed into stepping aside due to the sheer weight of his crimes. Like in the case of Beria, Malenkov's record was monstrous and Khrushchev had used the skeletons in his closet against him. In line with this, Khrushchev ordered a commission be tabled to investigate the fates of those party figures who had attended the 17th Party Congress in 1934. This order to investigate what had happened to party members two decades before was inspired by several revelations which had emerged after Stalin's death, which included startling figures relating to exactly how far Stalin's purges in the late 1930s had gone. As we learned last time, at least 70% of those that had attended in 1934 would not return for the 18th Congress a few years later. During several meetings of the party presidium during December 1955, Khrushchev had brought up the issue of the purges and requested in the end that 13 of these still-living victims of the Stalinist terror be allowed to attend the 20th Party Congress in February 1956. The attendance of these Bolshevik relics from a bygone age was intended to add an air of legitimacy and authenticity to the endurance of communist teaching when the Congress actually met. Look at these loyal figures from the past and how even despite their trials and tribulations they remain loyal to the Marxist-Leninist ways, Khrushchev could say. Of course, he couldn't refer to these individuals and their trials without elaborating somewhat on the nature of these trials. Thus, by approving their attendance, the members of the Presidium set Khrushchev up to drop a bomb on those assembled. If they were in attendance during the secret speech portion of the Congress, 
it is unlikely they would have shared the shock of their gasping colleagues. They were, after all, the living embodiment of what Stalin's cruel personality had done. Comrade Khrushchev, do we have the courage to tell the truth? This question was asked by Aversky Aristov, chief of cadres of the Central Committee Administrative Apparatus and a key member of the commission investigating the fates of those who had disappeared after 1934. This, even before the secret speech took place, demonstrated the central problems that the post-Stalin Soviet Union struggled with. The truth could be useful, but it could also be terribly dangerous. Not a single person seemed totally without guilt. At the very least, men could be accused of being complicit through their silent and tacit acceptance of Stalin's arbitrary justice. As Khrushchev knew firsthand, it was him or me. When Stalin said dance, a wise man danced. But of course, not everyone was happy with letting the truth come out. We must say in the report that Stalin was a great continuer of Lenin's cause. I insist on this, said Molotov, who remained an important, latent influence in Soviet circles, even while his practical powers had been effectively neutered by mid-1955. This face-saving demand could not be complied with, but some present at the Presidium debates tried to reach a compromise by insisting that one had to look at Stalin's regime in the context of the total history of Bolshevism. Khrushchev had not backed down, though, and the force of the revelations regarding the purges had plainly made their mark. It was during these debates in December 1955 that some of the most incendiary rhetoric continued to be poured out. If these facts are true, then how can this be communism? This cannot be forgiven, a junior attendee piped up. Take a look at our history, responded the veteran Mikoyan. It's enough to drive you mad. Anastas Mikoyan was far from the only one to make such a cynical pronouncement, as the debates over precisely what to say in the upcoming Congress continued. Over the last several months we've learned terrible things. None of this can be justified, insisted one member. Addressing the problem of accountability, another claimed, Did we know? We knew, but there was terror. At the point, we couldn't do anything. The party is obliged to explain, to tell at the Congress and at the plenum. At a session on the 1st of February 1956, less than two weeks before the communist delegates from around the world were due to gather in Moscow, Khrushchev continued to develop the critique of Stalin's policies, saying... Stalin was devoted to the cause of socialism, but he used all sorts of barbaric means. He destroyed the party. He was not a Marxist. He obliterated all that was holy in a man. Everyone was at the mercy of his whims. In fact, the fortnight which preceded the Congress in early February 1956 contained a morass of exercises and pronouncements designed to persuade even the most avowed Stalinist of the late leader's crimes. At one point... Khrushchev even managed to get the shaky and teary Peter Pospolov, a former editor of Pravda, before the Presidium to deliver his report on his findings after he had gone through the archives of the NKVD. Pospolov was a serious and loyal Stalinist of the old order, and he shocked many of those that knew him by his appearance. The statistics that Pospolov presented were explosive, of the 1.9 million persons arrested and charged with anti-Soviet activity between 1935 and 40, over 688,000 had been executed by firing squad. 
848 of the 1,966 delegates at the 1934 Party Congress would be shot on Stalin's orders. Stalin also had arrested and shot 98 out of the 139 candidates who had been elected to the party's central committee. These figures were horrific enough, but Pospolov wasn't finished. He continued with a presentation of precisely how Stalin had ordered or thought up these arrests and executions. Numbers were simply thrown into different Soviet leaders' laps, and they were told to arrest that number. 35,000, for example, was the number handed to the Moscow NKVD, and Stalin expected this department to arrest this number of people. Whether he expected them to be guilty or not is unknown. What is known, and what was made clear to the Presidium through Peter Pospolov's report, was that the NKVD chiefs rushed to compete with one another out of fear to fill their quotas of arrests before their departmental rivals. When they achieved their goals, they then appealed to Stalin to be permitted to raise them as a means of showing their utter devotion to the Man of Steel's pursuit of justice. The records noted that the NKVD rounded up over 100,000 Poles, a typical target of Soviet wrath, and meticulously stated the nationality and number of further victims, down to the 691 Afghans who were also arrested and shot. The arbitrary way in which the head of the NKVD at the time, Nikolai Yezhov, had rounded up the guilty, appeared more like a vain means for Yezhov to satiate Stalin's unceasing paranoia rather than the actual dispensation of justice. Yezhov, the Presidium was reminded, failed in his task in the end to satiate his master's thirst, and he too was sacrificed on the altar of Stalin's paranoia like so many others. The ripples of persecution became waves and then tsunamis of Stalin's murderous frenzy where nobody seemed safe from the monstrous rampage of the Man of Steel's demented mind. The sheer state of what Stalin had done to these people and the profiles that Pospolov read out only served to depress those present even more. Members of the party, since 1905, 1907 or 1910, a fisherman, a factory worker or a peasant, served with distinction in the Civil War, imprisoned many times by the old Tsarist regime, etc. Nobody was safe, and all were charged with frankly insane crimes of treason and terrorism. All who were charged would die in front of a firing squad, noted Pospolov, except two who died during the course of their NKVD beatings. The stories went on, as did Pospolov's testimonies, for several more hours, all confirming the picture Khrushchev had argued for, and laying the foundations for what was necessarily to follow in the secret speech. Finally, Pospolov, remember a former Stalinist here, finished his report, noting that Lenin had been correct all along. Stalin, far from being permitted to lead the Soviet Union, should have been removed as first secretary in the early 1920s after all. One can imagine the scene which followed Pospolov's report on the first day of February in 1956. Pospolov was himself reduced to a blubbering mess on several occasions during the report, and he paused to compose himself, since he was literally taking apart the man he had looked up to for so many years. And even with all this evidence, senior members of the party feared more than anything else what the public or other party functionaries would make of these truths if they were released in their full incendiary form. Some wished to stress Stalin's achievements still, 
for the sake of maintaining the stability of the party and state. It was Amashtash Mikoyan who proposed a compromise. Stalin's deeds will be divided into two phases, that of post-1934 and pre-1934. In this way, the quintessential foundations of the Soviet Union and much of its practical doctrine, such as five-year plans and collectivization, could be insulated against criticism, while after 1934, it could be argued that Stalin's state of mind took a turn, and disaster and tragedy had followed. Amidst some disagreements on how to proceed, Khrushchev noted that the Presidium could determine its own fate. We can say at the top of our own voices that we are not ashamed, Khrushchev said. In reference to his conversation with Alexei Snegov, that former Gulag prisoner, the first secretary asked what the people would say when the party learns the truth from former prisoners. It would be impossible, Khrushchev insisted, to keep the truth hidden away forever, unless one ordered a liquidation of all prisoners currently held or hunted down those that had been released. Since it was too late to cover up the truth, Khrushchev and his peers wanted to be in charge of how this message was transmitted, not through the words of resentful, traumatised former prisoners, but through the authoritative, controlled voice of the party secretary, would the truth be given out. The party plenum approved of Khrushchev's request to perform a speech criticising the cult of personality which Stalin had created. Yet only the top echelons of the party could have known exactly what Khrushchev would say a fortnight later. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, my lovely history friends and patrons. It has certainly been a heavy and rather involved one, so we're going to leave it there for now. We'll return next time with a bit more analysis of the speech, and of course we'll gather our resources together to explain how the secret speech was first learned of by the East and West, and then how it was reacted to. I hope you'll join me for that, but until then, my name is Zach, you are a lovely patron, and you've been listening to 1956, episode 1.3. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.